To God be the glory. I feel a theme developing. <laughs>
It is my honor and privilege to introduce our guest speaker for the morning. Each year around this time, he comes to town for the Gladeville Conference, which went very well this week. We had a very good time out in Gladeville, and we did have a handful of folks from GCA who showed up. Every day, GCA was represented. I don't think there were any of the morning or evening sessions when there wasn't at least one extra person from GCA there. So I appreciate you guys coming out, and I know that you enjoyed it. It was a good and a, a tiring week. And because I'm no fool, I thought, I'm exhausted. I'm thinking guest preacher. So, you know, you're not dealing with a chimp here. So, through the years of GCA, anybody who's been around for any amount of time knows David Morris. And anybody who knows David Morris learns to love David Morris. He grows on you. He, along with Elder Ward, ordained me into the ministry back in year 2000, Cinco de Mayo, year 2000. So I have obviously great, great affection for David. David and I are theologically bound at the hip. I mean, we are just, we have spent time together trying to find something to disagree about, and we we just really can't. We're in a tremendous amount of agreement. I think the last thing we disagreed about had to do with food, so I don't know. I'm always very, very happy when he comes our way. David has an itinerant ministry. David travels around the country and indeed around the world. Uh, we were talking last night at dinner about the fact that he was invited to come over and help uh, establish a church in Italy and wasn't able to go there and, and do that, but he goes over there and preaches regularly. And so... He is a a sought-after and well-respected teacher, lecturer, conference preacher. And for those of you who saw him at the conference this week, you know that he can uh, tear the paint off the walls, but he also is a gifted teacher and lecturer. He's also a little intimidating to preach in front of because he keeps his Greek polyglot open in front of you while you're preaching. And since he is adept in both Greek and Hebrew, you know, every once in a while I'll pronounce a word or define a word, and then I'll glance over at him, and as long as he's not scowling, I feel like I've I've done well. I feel good. So he is my dear friend in many ways, a mentor to me. He convinced me of limited atonement, and I didn't even know him when he did it. But he had preached on the doctrines of grace at a conference out in East Tennessee. And those tapes fell into my hands. And I had to sit in my car in my driveway in the summer heat listening to those tapes. He got to limited atonement, something that I had been struggling with. And by the time he got done talking, I turned off my car and I sat there and said, it has to be that way. I can't think of it any other way now. So he's had a very profound influence on my thinking and theology. And I called John Riesinger one day and said, who's David Morris? And he said, oh, you're going to like him. (laughs) And gave me his phone number. And I called him up and said, you don't know me, but you've had a very profound influence on me. And he said, well, I'm coming to Tennessee soon. And so we got together at Luby's Cafeteria. 
and just sat and talked for hours. And I was grateful when I left that lunch because I knew I had gained a brother. And all these years later, we're still fast friends. So please welcome my dear friend, David Morris. Well, good morning. Good morning. I give honor to our God, whom we recognize as supremely worthy of all glory. We magnify him this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one eternal God in the trinity of his sacred persons. It is good to be with you once again, my brothers and sisters. I appreciate the, the kind words of your pastor. Uh, I don't know how much they will cost me, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's drawing up the bill. Uh, no, I'm very grateful for his kind words and also for his friendship. Uh, it's just always good when we're together, and of course, this past week's afforded us that opportunity. Even though it was a busy time, uh, we have the privilege often of being together in Texas for a conference that you're familiar with out there, and uh, we've often roomed together then, and uh, he's not a bad roommate, believe it or not. I don't know how he'd critique me, but uh, he does real well, and uh, we've had just privileges to be together often in the course of uh, ministry, and uh, we're, we're grateful for that privilege of fellowship and for friendship as well for that Siamese twin mentality as far as truth and doctrine go that he's already mentioned. And I'm, I'm thankful for you, my brothers and sisters. It's good to see you, to be with you, have the opportunity to once again open God's Word together. And as we do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to read a, a rather lengthy portion uh, beginning there at verse 17. But our focus will really be just on one verse, verse 30. But I'm going to read beginning at verse 17 of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, verse 5. So that we might appreciate the context of what we'll be looking at together, the Lord willing, in verse 30. By way of a title for the message this morning, borrowing from Ms. Crosby's hymn, which we have sung together, To God Be the Glory. And as we look together at this portion, I believe you might see why, especially in that area around, clustered around verse 30. But let's begin reading there in verse 17 at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May our God be pleased today to add his blessing. His stamp and seal to his written and read word, to his inspired and preserved word of truth. And together may we just bow our hearts before him to ask his blessing on his word. Father, once again we bow in your presence in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ crucified. As we read of him here in the words of the apostle. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would now be pleased to own your word to the good of our souls. Father, how grateful I am for giving me the privilege I have to be among your people here again at Grace Christian Assembly. Father, I pray that our time might be beneficial to each one. That, Father, you would grant that your word could be a blessing. Father, that those words that we would seek to amplify your word, Father, we pray that you might make them as well beneficial and blessed. Father, we pray that in it all, the Lord Jesus might be exalted. You might be glorified for we ask in his worthy name. Amen. As we look together at these words of first Corinthians one, again, particularly lifting before you verse 30, I give you by way of a title to God be the glory. And in large measure, the apostle Paul is, as he writes in this portion of the letter, he is seeking to address some issues that had arisen among God's people there at Corinth. Thankfully, nothing that happens in our century today, I'm talking about church division uh, and following men. Who could imagine that happening? You know, I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. I think those who thought themselves spiritual said that instead. We don't follow men, you know, but they were really just as guilty. And in some measure, the apostle addresses that, but he doesn't address it so much directly as he does in addressing it, point out the riches of God's grace in the gospel. And in pointing that out, pointing the debt we owe to God supremely and the glory that is due to him because of what he has done for us in bringing us into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to think about that and uh, that verse particularly in the light of the context. And as we do, one thing that these words in verse 30 clearly delineate, they, they spell out for us in no uncertain terms what it means to be a believer. 
and it, it, it's a good standard. It's a good rule to look at our lives by and ask seriously, am I a Christian? Not by man's definition, but by God's definition. And if I can say I am, then as well to consider in the light of what Scripture says here, to consider how my life ought to be marked by, in measure, not in perfection, but in measure, the consistency that these words point to. And I have to sometimes, when I read words like this, I have to say, oh me, instead of amen. Because God's word speaks to me where I am in my life and sometimes points out clearly to me, David, you need to measure up here. You need to, your life needs to be consistent with the principles of truth. And if that's where we find ourselves, may God grant us to say, Lord, work on me. Lord, carve on me. Lord, make me more like your son. And I believe these words can aid us in that. Let's think together about them then, brothers and sisters. And as we do, I'd like for us to begin, really, in that first part of verse 30, in considering together, as the apostle speaks here, what I would give you as a definition of the Christian life. And it's something that may not be readily apparent when you read the opening of verse 30. It might be that you struggle to say, where is that definition? But it's there. Notice again the words of the apostle as he says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Now we don't speak in that vernacular today like we should, I believe. We talk about being saved. The evangelical world talks about accepting Christ or making a decision, becoming a Christian. But for Paul, that which defined Christianity was being in Christ Jesus. It was a saving union with the Lord Jesus Christ that for him was definitive above everything else of what it means to be a believer of what it means to be a Christian. Now, the reason that's important is because that phrase, as it speaks of that union with the Lord Jesus, that phrase captures so many things. But, but again, it is for Paul, if you will, so often by inspiration, the will on which he rolls what it is to be a Christian. If you'll look with me, just keep your place at 1 Corinthians one thirty, but turn back a page or so in your Bible and notice the words of Romans chapter 16. And in verse 7, we read this. Romans 16, 7, the apostle is giving some of those closing greetings to the church at Rome there. It's a, it's a great chapter. Uh, Elder Wren, as he preached in the conference this past week, he, he, he spoke from Genesis 5, the genealogies. You know, the place where you don't look for any spiritual blessing. And, of course, he brought out some spiritual blessing. And he mentioned Romans 16 is one of those chapters we often overlook because it's really just a passel of names. 
But oh, what is contained here is rich because we see the interaction of the Lord's churches in that first century and the fellowship that existed in a wider way throughout the empire. But as Paul is passing on greetings to Rome, he says this in verse 7, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Now notice how the apostle speaks of these two, probably a couple by what we have in at least the King James Version. And when we think about what Paul says here, he speaks of Andronicus and Junia, a couple, and he says some things about them that are interesting. He speaks of them as as kinsmen, whether he means simply Jewish or actually relatives. Fellow prisoners, Paul was in prison when he wrote to Rome. They were as well. He speaks as well of the fact that they were apparently known not only to him but to other apostles. But then he adds this final note, this fourth thing about them in verse 7, who were in Christ before me. Now, if you and I were saying that today, we would probably say they were saved before I was. They were converted before I was. They became Christians before I was. But for Paul, he says, they were in Christ before me. And that's significant because, again, for Paul, this is the way he defines being a Christian. It's interesting. By one Greek scholar's count, this is not mine, but uh, Marvin Vincent has said that Paul uses the phrases in the Lord, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, 132 times in his letters. And if you add to that in him and in whom, for instance, as you find it in that great benediction of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, that's a lot of times when our union with Christ is spoken of. And, and again, for the apostle, that is significantly definitive of how he speaks of being a Christian, to be in Christ Jesus. The reason that's so important is because as you and I are born into this world, we're not born into that union with Christ. We're born sadly into another union. We're in Adam. I'm sure you've heard about the father who spoke to the preacher one time. The preacher talked about how all of us were an Adam. And the father said, well, you know, I'm not sure my child is an Adam. But one thing I'm sure of, Adam's in my child. <laughs> you know, we have a way of confirming and verifying our Adam identity, don't we, by our sinfulness. And, and it doesn't take long, you know. You tell a child no and that baby says inwardly, yes, you know, a toddler. The reality of that is seen. And we're in union with Adam as we enter this world. And the fallout of that union is evident across the board throughout our world. As the old New England primer put it, in Adam's fall, we fell all. And we we see the reality of that union in which we've been joined to Adam. If you want to, Brother Jim used the uh, expression as he talked about our doctrinal solidarity, joined at the hip. Well, old Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he put it this way. He said, all humanity hung from the loins of Adam. And what he meant by that is we were in Adam. 
And so when Adam rebelled, we rebelled. When Adam became spiritually dead, we became spiritually dead. Adam's fall impacted us in that way. And as I enter this world, I'm in that union with Adam. And it is a union of sin. It's a union of death. It's a union of condemnation. And what I need desperately is to be transferred from that union with Adam and placed into a union with the second man, the last Adam, the Lord from heaven, Jesus Christ. And that's why the apostle speaks so well, of uses so often, I should say, this term. He speaks of being in Christ because of the fact that that's what we need desperately. If I can liken the union with Adam as being part of a dead trunk. Think of me, David Morris, and you. We're branches in a dead trunk. What does that make us? Makes us dead branches. You know what dead wood is good for? Burning. And that's what I was good for. But what God in grace has done in bringing us into union with his son is he has taken us dead branches and he has united us to the living vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in being united to the living vine, grafted in, if you will, in being grafted into the living vine, Christ, we become branches in the vine who now have the life-giving sap of the son of God flowing into us through that life-giving union. And that reality speaks of life for us. Now, if I could use the grafting illustration, and I don't know a lot about horticulture, but if I could use that grafting illustration, the grafting did not hurt us. But in order for us to be grafted into the living vine, he was cut upon. And if you think about the the tenor of Paul's words throughout Chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he again and again refers to Christ crucified. For you see, the Savior to whom I have been joined in this life-giving union is the one who was crucified. Why was he crucified? So that you and I might have life. His death becomes our life. And his death secured for us that union without which I would have perished, without which the lake of fire would have been my eternal home, my eternal residence. But thank God it's not. Why? Because of Christ crucified. I owe it all to him. There's nothing else that can be said. It's not my merit. It's not my work. It's not my doing. It's not my dying. It's what Christ has done. He, the one who was crucified, he is the gospel chorus says so well. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sin away. Christ has done that through his work. And as a result of that, I am brought into union with him. And as I I mentioned, Christ, the living vine, our Savior in John 15, used that illustration of himself. Remember, I am the true vine. My father's the husbandman. Ye are the branches, he told his disciples. And in that, we see something that, again, speaks of that vital relationship of being in Christ. For Paul, it's spoken of in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 later as a head-body relationship. And again, there's that idea of living union that marks those words. The, The idea that we see in this in Christ connection that 
is so necessary and so powerful. Taken out of Christ, out of Adam rather, placed into Christ. Now, when we consider this, the apostle, he uses another illustration in Ephesians 5 that's found in a passing way in chapter 6 of this letter when he speaks of being joined to the Lord much like a husband and wife are joined into that one flesh relationship of marriage. And he, he uses that analogy of the Lord Jesus and his people. Again, it speaks of union, the reality of what it is to be in Christ Jesus. Something else that stands out as we go back to those words of 1 Corinthians one thirty, is not only this definition of the Christian life to be in Christ Jesus, but also... The source of that life is identified. Notice again those words of verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Now, again, I'm reading the King James. And if you'll notice, it says of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Just a technical grammatical note about the King James English. Uh, There's a distinction made between you and you. And it, it really had already begun to, to, to move in English in the days of the King James translators, but they preserved it because of its utility. If I speak to you singularly in King James English, I would say thou. If I'm speaking to you plural, I'd say ye. Notice the apostle doesn't say of him art thou in Christ Jesus, but of him are ye. And the significance of that, I think, was particularly meaningful for a congregation like Corinth that was fractured, that was marked by division. Peter, Cephas, Paul, Apollos, Christ. And yet the apostle says, of him are ye to remind them that whatever divisions they may want to erect between themselves, God had placed them all as believers into blessed union with God's Son. Brothers and sisters, that transcends all of the differences that we have. I watched the end of the ACC tournament last night. My Tar Heels won the tournament. (laughs) And I was glad to be able to cheer in those last 10 minutes or so so that we watched it. Pastor Jim's home, I was glad to be able to cheer them to victory. And the beautiful thing about it was Duke got eliminated early too, you know. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. He was giving the. Now, the problem is there are believers who are Duke fans. I don't know how they can root for the devil, but that's their business, not mine. But, you know, that doesn't just mark North Carolina. Uh, You've got Vol fans and Tide fans, right? And I'm not going to try to ask for a show of hands either. That might be warlike, you know. But, But it doesn't matter who you pull for in college sports. What matters is, are you in Christ Jesus? Doesn't matter who your NASCAR driver might be. 24, you know, people still say three, even though Daryl's been gone a long time, right? That's not the issue. Doesn't matter what school you went to. All of those things eclipse before this one fact. If you love Jesus Christ, you've been placed in Christ Jesus. This past week, Pastor Jim and I were at a conference, obviously, for those of you who visited, predominantly black. Yet, that doesn't become an issue because we're in Christ Jesus 
And, and that becomes the most significant thing. Because you see, the bottom line is ultimately, there are two men in history that really matter. Of all the figures, all the personages who walked across the stage of history, Napoleon, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, and on the list can go. There are two men in history that really matter. That's Adam and Christ. Because you're in one or you're in the other. Paul here can say, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus. And as he says that, he not only defines the Christian life in terms of that union with Christ, he also identifies the source of that life. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. And that is so clear in the context as the apostle speaks. Because as he talks about his time at Corinth, when he first went to preach there, he was preaching Christ crucified. And what does he say about that message? He says it was a message that for the Jew was a stumbling block and for the Greeks it was foolishness. For the Jew to tell them that Christ, Messiah, hung on a tree, died the cursed death of the cross. Why, that was a stumbling block. That was an offense. For the Greek, on the other hand, to tell him that God was one, no other, they believed in many. But to tell him that that one God, by a virgin womb, became a man and then lived through all the cycles of life till at age 33 he was put to death on the Roman cross. That was foolishness to the Greek mind. And so Paul's got a message that nobody wants to hear, right? Well, not quite. Let's go back to verses 23 and 24 and notice what he says there. As he speaks of the Jew and the Greek in verse 23, he says this, But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. But under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. There we have that call of God that is that special call. And I know I don't have to enlarge on it greatly here because of the teaching you receive. But let me just remind you, refresh you on it. As the apostle speaks of, in contrast to the Jew who finds the gospel a stumbling block, to the Greek who finds it foolishness, he says, but unto them which are called, Christ the power of God. Now, there's a call we can eliminate by virtue of the wording there. He says, unto them which are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, there's an outward call of the gospel that goes forth. When the gospel's preached outwardly, the call goes to sinners. But for those to whom that call comes, Christ is not the power of God and wisdom of God to everyone who gets that outward call. But... The Bible also speaks of an inward, we call effectual call. And in that call, as it comes through the outward call, by the, may I say it, by the personalizing work of the Spirit of God that has that way of singling out the sinner so that the sinner realizes his or her need, his or her spiritual condition, his or her sinnerhood in such a way as that they realize Christ alone can save. Christ alone can satisfy. And for them, that message through that inward call is made effectual. It's made powerful. Doesn't happen with everyone outwardly. 
But thank God it happens to God's people, His elect. God does that. As He does it, you may have been the type who when you first heard the gospel, you thought, keep that junk to yourself. You may have thought half the people in the crazy house are religious people. I don't want that mess. And yet, as the Spirit of God began to single you out, as the Spirit of God began to, may I say it, beat up on your heart and show you you were a sinner, as he convicted you, let me tell you what it is to be, a conv- to be convicted. It's to be made a convict. <laughs> See, every one of us who are saved are convicts. Every one of us who are saved have said, guilty, that's right. We've been driven by the Spirit of God to see how guilty we are in our sin. And we've thrown up our hands and declared ourselves guilty before the court of justice. And the good news is, everyone who says guilty receives pardon. Guilty, Lord. And uh, that's when pardon comes. But it's the Spirit of God who does that. To them who are called, Christ the power of God, Christ the wisdom. I love the way John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, John Reisinger was mentioned earlier. His brother, John's brother, Ernest Reisinger, they pronounced their names differently, uh, and they were different in other ways. Ernest Reisinger said that he didn't believe you could go to heaven unless you'd read Pilgrim's Progress. And John used to say, I'm not sure he's right, but I wouldn't take my chances, you know. It's a great work, but I'm just throwing that out to you for free. I'm not saying you have to do that to be saved. Okay. But John Bunyan, he used to speak about the difference between that outward call and that inward call by means of the hen in the barnyard. He said that the hen in the barnyard could be out scratch feeding, you know, and going about her business. Just clucking. I won't cluck for you because I'm not a good clucker, but just clucking, you know. Nothing happened. He called that the common cluck. But he said, when that hen sensed danger, that hen would give that special cluck, and all of her little chicks would come and gather under her wing. And Bunyan used that to distinguish the general call of the gospel and the effectual call. And oh, I like that illustration. Because you see, I'd heard the general call. But there came a time in my life in sovereign grace when God brought that, that, may I say it, that special cluck. And I, like a little bitty, I came running to hide under the wings of my great Savior. And I found protection under his wings. And by the way, there is safety under his wings as we think about Christ crucified here. I remember reading the story some years ago about a farmer whose, whose barn had burned and, 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 the, and, and the appraiser came out to see how much the claim could be made on the insurance. And as the farmer was leading the adjuster around, he, he saw his, his hen there burnt to a crisp. And he, he, he was so angry because of the fire. He said, I can't believe it. He even got my hen and he kicked her. And when he did... Outran some biddies, outran some chicks. The fire had fallen on the mother hen, but her biddies were safe. May I say to you, that's what happened at the cross. Our Savior spread out his wings over us, and I've found safety. I've found salvation from the fire of wrath because it fell on him. And because it's fallen on him, it will not fall on his people. 
We find safety. Now, one day in time, the Spirit of God sent out that special cluck. And I came to find shelter and safety under the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that call. Paul will mention it again later in the chapter in verse 26. Notice, though, how it moves from calling, really, to election, to God's choice. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things. Notice again, he's connecting here calling with choice, with God's election. He says God has chosen. And the, the Greek word translated chosen is the same word that's otherwise used as elect. Uh, the, the word eklego, eklektos, the, the noun and verb forms. Reverse them, though, the way I said them. And, and Paul says that God has chosen. God has elected. And oh, what he says about what he's chosen isn't too flattering to us. For what has he chosen? He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. He's chosen the base things of the world and things which are despised and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. In other words, he's chosen us. May I say it? Great big zeros with the rim rubbed out. (laughs) He's chosen us. But oh, the good news is he chose us. And as I read these words, I think about the reality of that in light of some words that our Savior uttered in prayer to the Father in Matthew 11. As he pronounced woes on Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, cities where he'd done so many of his mighty works. After he pronounced those woes on them, they're responsible. Men are responsible before God. He's sovereign, and because he's so sovereign, men are so responsible. But after he had done that, the Lord Jesus then looked in prayer to the Father, and he said, and Dr. Luke tells us he rejoiced in spirit. And he said, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, from the wise acres and the smart alecks, and you've revealed them unto babes. I'm glad to be one of the babes tonight. I'm glad to be one of those babes to whom he's revealed his truth. So undeserving. And yet in his gracious election, in his gracious choice, I've been included. And it's not because of anything in me. For when you think about foolish things, base things, weak things, things that are not, those aren't the kind of things you choose because of any inherent value in them. You choose them simply because you want to choose them. And oh, I'm so glad for that blessed truth of God's electing love, God's choice. Now, I do glory in it, by the way. I'm glad to be able to say he chose me. Not in the boasting of myself, but remember our title? To God be the glory. I have to give him all the glory for that salvation. As we think about this, just quickly, I I need to move on because I'd love to finish the verse. But let me just mention to you, by way of illustrating this truth of, of him, are you in Christ Jesus? The source of the Christian life identified is God himself. He's the one who called. He's the one who chose. And we see this throughout the word of God, don't we? 
You go back to Genesis and there's a man named Abraham who goes from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran in Mesopotamia and then he comes into the land of promise. What do we find out about Abraham though in Joshua 24? Abraham was an idol worshiper down in Ur of the Chaldees. He wasn't seeking God, going to a Billy Graham crusade and saying, I want to know the Lord. No. He was an idol worshiper. But what did God do? In sovereign grace, God pulled him out of his darkness and revealed himself to him. And as Stephen says in Acts 7 in his sermon there before the synagogues of the Jews in Jerusalem, he says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham, our father. He's the God of glory, but may we add, he's the God of grace and glory, for he appeared to this heathen. Or if Aunt Esther were here, she'd say, heathen, right? Some of you will pick that up. Most of you miss it. Okay? Sanford's son, if any of you need context, that's all I'm saying. But Abraham was a heathen. A heathen. He was worshiping the gods of the, of the Chaldeans. And out of that heathen darkness, God's grace came to him. Or let's think about two generations down, Jacob. Oh, he, you love Jacob, don't you? What a fine, upstanding fella. <laughs> Sell me your birthright. I'll give you some soup for it. <laughs> but the funny thing about Jacob is he, when he got a father-in-law, he got a greater trickster than himself, right? His very name means cheat. Yaakov in Hebrew. He'll take by the hill. And yet what does God say? Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Now you've heard the story I'm sure of. Some say it was Charles Spurgeon. Others say it was W.H. Griffith Thomas. May have been both. But someone came to, came to either of them. Said I've got a problem with the Bible verse. I wonder if you can help me. He said well I'll, I'll try to. What is it? Well, there's that verse, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And the Bible teacher said, oh, I'm so glad to know you've got a problem with that verse. I've always had a problem with it too. And they said, oh, I'm glad to hear it. I don't understand how God can say Esau have I hated. And the Bible teacher stopped him right there and said, hold on. You don't have the same problem I have with that verse. I have no difficulty seeing that God could say Esau have I hated. My problem is how God could say, Jacob, have I loved. And oh, brothers and sisters, if you knew David Morris like I knew David Morris, you'd understand why I had difficulty understanding how God could say, David, have I loved. And yet the good news of sovereign grace is God has loved us with an everlasting love. Oh, we can say like Brother Robinson wrote in that hymn, love with everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Spirit speaking from above, thou hast taught me, it is so. What love. And it's not about you, thank God. It's about him. And because it's in him for you, then you didn't do anything to do it. And may I add, you can't undo it either. Now, I'm not saying that for any license for the wrong direction, but I, oh, child of God, we're loved, loved in Christ because of Christ. Well, we need to move on, so let's try to look at the latter part of the verse 2, and we'll try to do that quickly. But it's as though 
I, I mentioned emphasis on syllables a little while ago. Have I told you all before about that, that expression? When I was in first and second year Greek in university, I was at Campbell College, and our Greek professor was Dr. Kronji Burnsford Arp. That's Kronji, C-R-O-N-J-E. Never met another Kronji in my life, but he was, I don't need to because when I met him, I, I met all the Kronji I needed, you know. <laughs> And when we would mispronounce a Greek word, Dr. Arp would say, Oh, Mr. Morris, you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> he, he, he made his point. Well, if you will, Paul puts emphasis on this point. For he says, But of him are you in Christ Jesus. Now notice the next phrase. Who of God is made to us wisdom. And so forth. Do you get the idea that the apostles trying to emphasize something to the Lord's people at Corinth? Of him who of God. You see, you and I are thick up here sometimes. So truth sometimes has to be like a steamroller just to get our attention. Because uh, Mr. Whitfield said it well, we're Arminians by nature. And so... God emphasizes the truth of his sovereignty and grace so that we might appreciate that reality and it might begin to get inside us. That it might get in our thinking, in our mind, it might get in our heart, it might get in our life. Who, speaking of Christ, of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, that word wisdom is almost in the Greek text isolated by itself as though to say Christ is made to us wisdom that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And I believe there's a reason for that because if you read these first chapters of the first letter here, you'll find that the apostle is using the word wisdom and wise a whole lot. Why? Because what did he say the Greeks seek after? The Greeks seek after wisdom, you know. And, of course, Greece was considered the home of, of Western philosophy. You had Aristotle. You had Socrates. You had Plato. And yet, for all of its wisdom, as Paul says earlier in the chapters we read, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. All of Plato, all of Socrates, all of Aristotle had led men where? Nowhere. It had not brought them into the heart of God. I can remember in some measure this being communicated to me after Dr. Arp's Greek teaching. I was transferred to UNC Chapel Hill. That's why I was plugging the hills a little earlier, you know. Uh, but we had a professor my last year of undergrad study who came over from UNC Greensboro to teach a course for us in New Testament Greek. And as we were reading, we read 1 Corinthians and when Paul speaks here in that verse 28 about God has chosen the things that are not to bring to, to bring to naught the things that are. In Greek, the things that are not is tameonta. And the things that are is taonta. And Paul says that God has chosen these things that are not to bring to naught things that are. Well, this particular professor, Ms. Minyard, she was a, a specialist in Neoplatonic philosophy in Greek. One thing that Platonic philosophy talked about and Neoplatonic was, was the 
Tameata and Taata, the things that are and the things that are not. And here she reads these words and the offense of the gospel was evident. She looks at this and she says, when Paul says this, he's throwing whole philosophical categories out the window. And I wanted to say amen, but I didn't. (laughs) Had she been preaching, I probably would have, but she wasn't. She was scornful. Why? Because the wisdom of men is not of value when it comes to connecting us to God. One thing is needful, Christ crucified. You see, the way one put it in a little ditty was this. You can go to your college, you can go to your school, but if you ain't got Jesus, use an educated fool. (laughs) And I don't diminish learning, you know. They tell the seminarian who had gotten out of seminary and he was pastoring the church. And a woman walked up to him after his first bed. She said, God don't need your education, son. He said, no, ma'am, and he doesn't need your ignorance either. I'd say get all the education you can, you know, get all, but make sure you always keep it under the authority of this book. Don't let your wisdom get bigger in your thinking and your view than God's wisdom. But the problem with human wisdom is we get the idea, the notion that it'll solve it all and it won't. Because the basic issue of the heart that we have Manward and Godward is sin. And human wisdom can't address that. The only thing that can address that is the wisdom of God and the good news. And Christ has made that wisdom to us. When I was a young believer, uh, there was a brother in the church in which I grew up who... We, we printed tracks. We had little hand presses. We printed tracks and we'd go distribute them in phone booths throughout Fayetteville uh, in the area there where I grew up in North Carolina. He, one of the tracks we printed was the story of the foolish professor. I love it because it makes the point well. It tells about a professor who boarded a ferry one time on a, a rapid rushing river. And as he was crossing on the ferry, he engaged the ferryman in conversation. He, he asked him, tell me, have you ever studied algebra and trigonometry, James? And <laughs> the higher mass And the ferryman said, no, I've really been, been, you know, a boatman most of my life. He said, I know two plus two is four, but all of those higher mass, I really don't know anything about them. The professor looked at him and said, why one fourth of your life is gone? He asked him, tell me, have you ever studied geology? And uh, he said, well, you know, I, I know a rock when I see one, but I really haven't had opportunity for that. He, he said, well, one half of your life is gone. He, he went on to ask him about another sphere of learning. And, and as he did, the, again, the boatman had to answer, I, I've, not, I've not studied any. I've, I've told you that. He, he said, well, three quarters of your life is gone. At that point, the boat sprung a leak on that rushing river. The boatman looked at the professor and said, tell me, Mr. Professor, have you ever learned to swim? He said, no, I hadn't. He said, well, then all of your life is gone. <laughs> now, the beauty of that humorous incident in that, in that track was it points out no matter what spheres of learning you may have accrued learning and wisdom in, there's one type of learning that's essential for time and eternity. And that's what Paul is talking about with God's people as he says, Christ is our wisdom because all of the other categories of wisdom pale in comparison to being able to know that I stand right with God for eternity through the work of Christ crucified. That's the wisdom that matters. And then the apostle goes on, as it were, to break that down in terms of what that means again. 
It means Christ is our righteousness. I like that. Because that remembers what Paul in Romans 1 sets forth as a theme. As he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You see what people fail to remember that true wisdom will look at righteousness. That is having a standing, a right standing before God. And the only way that is achieved is by trusting the righteousness of someone else. Because before the judge who must do right, all of our righteousnesses are what? As filthy rags, Isaiah 64 says. I like to think of it this way. Some of you have had children like I. Some of you may remember a time when your son or daughter brought you a mud pie. Oh, mama, I've made you a mud pie. Oh, that's so sweet, honey. Thank you so much. Aren't you going to eat it? And mama fakes it, you know. Mmm, that's so good. No, mama, aren't you really going to eat it? (laughs) Well, if you will, our bringing our righteousness To God and saying, except this is like us bringing a mud pie to him. He's not going to eat it. The only thing that I can bring to him that's, may I say it, edible, is the righteousness of his son. He accepts that. Or if we want to think of it in terms of another way to illustrate it, the scriptures do. In terms of clothing. Mark Twain, the humorist, said, they say clothes make the man. He said, well, they must because there's not been any man in history who didn't have them, you know, that made a mark. (laughs) But, you know, clothes do make the man. What are you wearing before the living God? If I'm dressed in my righteousness, I'm wearing filthy rags. If I'm wearing my sin clothes, I've got on hog pin clothes, to use the picture of the prodigal. What kind of garments does God accept? The righteousness of Christ alone. And in Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah says by inspiration, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the robe of righteousness. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. That robe of righteousness, those garments are the righteousness of Christ alone. Christ, Paul says here, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness. But then he adds sanctification as well. That's, that's part of what the wisdom is. And it points out something that we have to enforce particularly in our day. Especially here in the South where you have so many people. Are you saved? They're in their 50s. Well, yes, I made a decision when I was 13 years old. <laughs> yeah, ain't been to church since, but the preacher told me I once I was saved, I was always saved. Praise God. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on my 15th marriage. And th- those women, they just can't get along with me. I can't, you know. I could go on with that a while. <laughs> but the point I make is if a person has come to know Christ as his or her righteousness, they also come to know Christ as their sanctification, their holiness. Does it mean we'll be perfect? No. Does it mean we'll be changed? Yes. 
Christ becomes our sanctification as well. And, and again, it's Christ crucified. For to use the idea of Romans 6 that Paul fleshes out more this idea. Because of our union with Christ. Remember the first part of our message. It's been a long time, but remember it. <laughs> of him are you in Christ Jesus. If I'm in Christ, that means this, Romans 6 tells me. When he died, I died. When he arose, I arose. And baptism pictures that, right? Buried with him in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism becomes a picture of what happened to me by virtue of union with Christ. I died to sin. I've been raised to righteousness. That being true, my life cannot be the same. Why? Because praise God, I'm under new management. Sin ain't going to reign no more. Oh, I know it's still present with me, but it's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that means that Christ is my righteousness also becomes my sanctification. One final point. That's that last word that speaks of what Christ has made to us. Redemption. Now, redemption, the Greek word here is apolutrosis. It has so often the idea of salvation in that Christ bought us. That's, that's at the heart of redemption. Christ purchased us. He delivered at the heart of apolutrosis is the word lutron, which means ransom. He paid the ransom price and he secured our release, our deliverance by paying the ransom price. It's a great picture of the, of the judicial aspect of salvation and how it is effective. But I believe as it occurs here, the word redemption has a special shade of meaning that we see back in Romans 8. When Paul there, as he talks about, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan like the rest of creation. Remember what he says, awaiting the redemption. Now, that's that term, but it's applied in a special future dimension. It seemed the same way in that benediction of Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when Paul talks about the Spirit be the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. He says it later in Ephesians 4.30 when he says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So you see, that word, while it has that salvation, meaning also has that specialized idea of really what will be the completion of our salvation when the body, praise God, is changed. Either as we're raised from death in resurrection or as we're changed, passing from life to life at the call, the trumpet sound. And that will be redemption. For you see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died not just to save my soul, No, he wants all of me. He died to save me, body, soul, and spirit. And praise God, he's going to have everything he bought. That means that if I do go the way of death, when that trumpet sounds, as the old spiritual says, ain't no grave going to hold my body down. I'm getting up. By the way, that's the Greek word for for resurrection, anastasis, standing up. In the black church, they called it that great getting up morning. I like that. (laughs) Great getting, and I'm going to get up. And if I'm alive when he comes, this body that he's redeemed along with the purchase price of my soul, it's going to be changed. 
And oh, I'm glad for that reality. But what I want you to notice is, as we thread this together, Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And it says he's been made that. Brothers and sisters, as I look at you this morning, you don't look redeemed like that yet, though. But neither are we glorified, are we? And yet, what does Romans 8 tell us? Moreover, whom he foreknew, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. But none of you look glorified to me, and I know you'd have to say the same about me. And yet in the mind and purpose of God, he speaks of it as done. Christ already made my redemption. And yet I'm not fully redeemed, body, soul, spirit yet. And yet in the mind and purpose of God, it's so. Boy, I can pillow my head there. I'm glad for that. Because sometimes in the nasty now and now, if it were left up to me, I'd wonder if I'm going to make it. But guess what? By his grace, I am. I remember years ago, I had the privilege of hearing a brother from West Virginia preach. Scott Richardson was from Fairmont, West Virginia. Brother Scott said that he grew up in a holler as far as you can stick a butcher knife. Now, I'm not an expert on hollers. But I think a holler as far as you can stick a butcher knife is as far as you can go up that holler and still have a little holler left, you know. He said that when he was growing up sometimes back, I think, in probably the 30s, maybe, maybe even earlier, he said that sometimes as he was walking along the road at night, somebody passed along in a car and they would ask him, where you live? He'd tell up the holler there and they'd say, let me give you a ride, hop in and They'd give him a ride. He said they'd take him about where the brickwork gave out on the road. And they'd ask him, can you make it the rest of the way yourself? He'd say, yeah, yeah, I can. And he said he'd get out and walk the rest of that dark holler, just walk it, you know. And he said one time that had happened to him. He got at the house. When he got inside the house, he told his dad, he said, Dad, if I ever get me a car and I ever give anybody a ride, I'm not going to take them part of the way. I'm going to take them all the way home. And the good news of the gospel is, brothers and sisters, he's going to take us all the way home. He's not going to take us part of the way. Hallelujah. All the way home. Christ has made to me wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Child of God, we can rest in that. And I would encourage you to rest in that. Somebody comes along and tries to somehow move you away from Christ. Tell him, excuse me, i got to go rest a while and go rest in him some more. Because this is the beauty of the gospel. From eternity past to eternity to come, it's a he done it gospel. He did it. And there's one response that should be ours as a result of that. As it says in verse 31, that according as, as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. What are you and I to do? One song should be ours now. To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. 
Oh, hallelujah. What a Savior. May you and I then live for him. And may our lives, as we know Christ is our righteousness, our sanctification, ultimately our redemption, may our lives be a bouquet that says, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. And may that be our heart as we live for him and serve him in these days. I thank you for the privilege of being able once again to bring a word. I thank you, Pastor Jim. And uh, I'm going to hand it over to you. Come on and do what you want to do, brother. The modern church is just riddled with preachers. And they'll talk about all kinds of stuff and all kinds of mess. But I hope you appreciate the message you heard this morning. And I hope you appreciate the heart of the man who brought you that message. Because, like I said, he has a ministry that takes him all over the world. And the fact that he stopped by GCA this morning, I I deeply, deeply appreciate. My privilege, Pastor. And I needed that message. I told him when we were talking last night, he said, is there anything you'd like me to, to talk about, anything you'd like me to emphasize? I said, we're almost 80 messages in Matthew, and we've been talking Israel, and we're talking Matthew 24, and we're talking prophecy, and we're, so we're just in the thick of all that stuff. I want to hear a, a sovereign gracey message was the, the <laughs> phrase I used. I said, go back and just talk about how we're saved and who we're saved by, and boy, didn't he do it. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.